1: And today I am breathing a big sigh, not so much of relief, but more of hope. What if there were a new vision that radically reframes our predicament and our approach to climate change? Would you listen and would you engage? Our guest today argues that many of the proposed solutions to climate change rely on the same thinking that brought us to the crisis, and cannot move us forward. He suggests the solutions lie in a new understanding of ourselves and our relationship to each other and the natural world, one that relies on what he calls interbeing. I love that phrase. You've heard that phrase on this show before. And I invite you to take a few deep breaths. Bring your awareness into this moment, open your heart and mind and settle into your essential wholeness as I introduce our guest. Charles Eisenstein is a speaker and writer focusing on themes of civilization, consciousness, money, and human cultural evolution. His viral short films and essays online have established him as a genre-defying social philosopher and countercultural intellectual. A graduate of Yale, he's the author of The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible, Sacred Economics, The Ascent of Humanity, and now Climate, A New Story. Welcome back to the show, Charles.
0: Hi, Julie. Thank you.
1: You bet. Thank you. Charles, I'm looking forward to this conversation today and um, really appreciate this book, even more than the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. I'm really excited to bring this to our listeners. But I have a traditional first question. You've asked, you've answered it before, but I look forward to seeing how maybe it has evolved over the years. Mm-hmm. So our traditional first question is, can you share with our listeners, what does all things connected mean to you?
0: I guess to me it seems like a simple statement of fact that – might be obvious to people in other cultures, but in our culture, we need to be reminded of, of, that that's true, because we have been brought up in a ideology and a worldview that seeks to understand the world by dividing it up into pieces. We're in recovery from that right now.
1: Mm. I like that word, recovery, Charles. Thank you. I think that's a... a really interesting perspective to invite our listeners into and i think they'll get the recovery piece as we move through um, our interview today and our conversation but you you also start your book this new book climate a new story with this fascinating allegorical tale of this man trapped in a maze and i think that really helps us to shift our perspective of climate change right now and understand who we are as a collective and, and what our potential is, can you just tell us a little bit more about that story and explain how you, how you came up with that and and mm-hmm. share it with our listeners?
0: Sure, yeah well, I've become aware, and most people have become aware that the civilizational program that was supposed to deliver us into utopia is faltering and hasn't brought us the glorious future of a perfect society with robot servants and 200-year lifespans and so forth that it had promised. And and instead, we're facing these seemingly unsolvable crises and, and, and problems that are dragging us down into despair. So we're recognizing that we don't really know the answers anymore. And I think that even a deeper level of humility is coming to us in that we know that we don't even know the questions anymore. So the allegory that I begin the book with is kind of a description of the process of coming to humility that comes not through a decision to be humble but through the exhaustion of everything that we thought we knew. That reveals then yeah that that reveals that as you said in the introduction that that so much of our solution is actually part of the problem, making things worse. So, yeah, did you want me to tell the story?
1: I love it. I wish you would.
0: Please. Okay, so I will. So once upon a time, there was a man who was lost in a maze, a deep underground maze. Who knows how he got there? There was probably a good reason for him to enter this maze, but he's forgotten what that was, and now all he wants is to get out. Because it's getting uncomfortable down there, you could say it's getting hotter and hotter, and he knows that if he doesn't get out, he's gonna die. so he's racing down the passageways and turning right, turning left, hitting dead ends, turning around again, getting lost again, finding himself back at the center, trying again and 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 just not getting anywhere and and a voice in his in his head says, "You know?" You're not getting anywhere. Maybe you just better stop. But no, he says, I can't stop. The only way I can get out is with my own two feet. So I better run even faster, because time is running out. I gotta be urgent, gotta act. So he runs even faster, filled with new stratagems to try to get out, full of a, a, a renewed burst of hope. But guess what? Before too long, he finds himself once again back at that center of the maze, and he's too tired to go on. He collapses in a heap, just exhausted and hopeless. In then, the time that he's sitting there in a heap, he begins to think, he begins to ponder his wanderings, and he realizes that in fact, there was a pattern to the maze that he was running too fast to even recognize. He begins to to understand that he had habits that locked him into the same old pathways again and again. Maybe each right turn would followed, be followed by a left turn or something like that. I mean, you could make a political allegory about this too. Um, and yeah, and he also realizes that he's been bypassing hidden doors and dark, narrow passageways that he just, didn't notice or was afraid to go down or they seemed too slow. Um, So he has like this new information. And at the same time, as his breath and his heartbeat calm down, he hears something that's really beautiful, a, a musical sound. And he remembers, I've heard this before. In fact, it's always been here. And I just have been pounding and running too hard to, to notice it. And it gives him a kind of, uh, hope. So he gets up and begins to walk, not run. Cause he knows if he runs, he's going to fall into his old patterns. He begins to walk. He tries out some of these secret doors, some of these dark passageways. He is guided by his understanding of where he's been before. And soon he enters totally new territory, places he's never been in the maze. And that increases his hope. And sometimes he reaches a choice point where he has no idea which way to go. And at those moments, he again stops and listens until he can hear that musical sound again. And whichever way the sound is coming from that's the passage he chooses so he navigates by that sound and eventually comes to the final passageway at the end of which he sees a radiance from the outside world and he steps out into that sunlit world to find the source of the music which is his lover who has been singing to him the whole time.
1: Charles, that would be a beautiful children's story. I hope you think about publishing that someday. I could see myself reading it to my granddaughter. Mm. I think it's it really is a powerful allegory, and um, it, it brings us into this conversation of this this rush, this hurry, this fear-based. And you're bringing a new idea to the conversation, which I appreciate so much i you know i've I've sat on so many different committees and organizations and people working on on the evolution of consciousness and climate change and and there is that fear base there's that hurry that urgency that ah uh, that whole first part of this man's story in that maze mm-hmm. it's very very real and so often i'll say wait when we're relaxed and we're calm, we can listen, we can be guided. We could do, No, 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 we don't have any time. And you address that in this book, and it's brilliant. I appreciate it so much, that voice. It begins with understanding this difference between a story of interbeing and the story of separation. So I'm going to let you talk a little bit about that and expand on what is the story of interbeing and what is the story of separation?
0: Yeah, so the story of interbeing, uh, and by the way, interbeing is, I believe, a word coined by Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese monk, Um, although it's such a natural word to describe what I'm talking about that I'm sure it's also occurred to other people. it, It goes beyond interdependency or interconnection to say that our very existence is relational, that who I am participates in who you are in who the the trees are, the forests, the water, that we're all part of each other, which means that anything that happens to anybody or anything in some sense is also happening to me. It means that anything happening to the Amazon or any species going extinct is happening to me. It may not affect my survival if the bramble cave mosaic tailed rat goes extinct, which it has like, did you notice that? Did it make your mortgage payment go up? Did it make you hungry? You probably didn't notice it on that level. But the impoverishment of the world, it's the depletion of life, depletes our own life and causes a kind of um, uh, impoverishment in ourselves that we can feel on some level. Perhaps it registers as a kind of loneliness or a kind of feeling of not belonging here. So when we understand that we are fundamentally inter-existent, we no longer need these utilitarian arguments about why we should save the environment because of the bad things that will happen to us. In the story of separation, which says that who you are fundamentally is a discrete, separate individual in a world of other. In an objective universe outside of yourself governed by impersonal forces acting on standard generic masses then what happens outside need not affect you as long as you can insulate yourself from those forces and dominate the other competing selves out there then you're going to be okay you're going to benefit at the expense of everybody else and and so from the story of separation, if we take that for granted, then the best argument that environmentalists can offer is, well, bad things will happen to us if we don't change our ways. And that is basically a fear-based argument, as you are saying, and it stands in such contrast to the kind of environmental arguments that I heard when I was a kid. It wasn't save the whales because if we don't, uh-oh, danger, bad things will happen. No, it was because these are such precious beings, sacred beings, we love them, they're beautiful. We want a world with whales. We want to have these as our companions. It was much more a love-based argument. And then climate change came along and environmentalists said, great, now we have a reason that, that we have to change. And we can tell people that if we don't, we're going to die, or if we don't, we're going to have huge economic losses and so forth. And I think that this this kind of argumentation is actually reinforcing the basic problem, the basic cause of ecocide, of the killing of ecology, of the killing of the world, is precisely that self-interested disconnected stance. So by appealing to that as a reason to to save the environment was strengthening the cause of the problem in the first place. So that's, yeah, I think that that's, that's how, or that's one way that, that the concept of interbeing relates to the work I've done on climate.
1: Mm. Yeah. And I appreciate you saying, you know, that the, the solutions that come out of the same thinking aren't going to carry us forward. Uh, uh, a play off of the Einstein quote as well of, about the same consciousness that created the problem. And this, I just have to just pause and say the story of separation and the story of interbeing are so soft on the ears. I, I think that's brilliant that you're introducing it in this way. We could talk about the illusion of separation. We could talk about worldviews. We could, and it, you're bringing it down into this narrative that I can go, Oh, this is the story That I grew up under and Mm -hmm. it doesn't even have to be that. Oh, there's something wrong with me or or anything like that. It's like, oh, these this story. So I think that that is brilliant. Thank you for that. And going back into this story of separation that's created crisis with climate change and the alarm bells are going off and we're all getting into this chronic place of stress as well as all the other systems and structures that are breaking down around us. I appreciate how you also take this approach. The climate crisis has been based on a war mentality. And I think when you explain that in the book, it makes so much sense. Can you just talk a little bit about that? How, how are we approaching climate Crisis as the war mentality.
0: Yeah, there's uh, two levels of war mentality when it comes to climate climate change. The first level, uh, and they're they're both they're both expressions of a cultural um, reflex, which is to find an enemy. So on one level, it's the it's a or against the fossil fuel companies or the fossil fuel company executives and the politicians allied with them. It's like, okay, let's find the perpetrators here. Let's find the people who are doing this to us. And if we can then remove them, dominate them, shame them, expose them, et cetera, the problem will be solved. Now, I think this is very short-sighted because these people are fulfilling roles that are systemically necessary. And to focus on these perpetrators misses the context that generates these perpetrators, that that creates the roles that these people occupy. So if you continually fight against the person occupying the role, but you do not change the system that that generates the role to begin with, you are going to fight an endless war, similarly to uh, the war on terror. If 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 you you can send in as many drones and bombs as you want and kill one terrorist after another, but if the droning and the bombing are intensifying the conditions that breed terrorism, then you're going to create endless terrorists and you're going to have endless war, not to mention the the deeper economics that that generates such misery in other countries that and and social dislocation and disruption that people turn to terrorism or or immigrate um, to to wealthier countries and you build a wall to stop them and here's again uh, a jump to the enemy find the cause find the bad guy so that's one level um, that actually maintains the status quo it's the man running and running around in the maze using the same old strategies and blind to the dark passageways that actually lead to somewhere new so it's you know people people might say well you know you're giving them a free pass so you're maintaining the status quo by by allowing them to to not be accountable but actually it's the opposite by by identifying them as a problem we are allowing the status quo to continue. Okay, so that's one level. The second level of the war mentality is deeper. It's to, um, I, it's, to, it's to reduce the entire ecological crisis to one thing called carbon or greenhouse gases. And to think that if we could only solve this problem, if we could only defeat this enemy, then all of our problems will be solved. And we have to sacrifice everything for this war effort. This is the one important thing, because if we don't cut greenhouse gases in the shrinking window available, then catastrophe will ensue. The enemies at the gates. We have to drop everything else and focus on this. This mentality of reducing the many to the one um, pervades civilization in many, many forms. Um, You can see it in religion. It's known as fundamentalism. You can see it in economics. It's the reduction of values into value. It's the reduction of of all worthy and good things into one worthy and good thing called money. That seems to be the solution to all of your problems. If you could only have enough money, all your problems would be solved. If we could only cut greenhouse gases, all of our problems would be solved. So we have this rush to blame everything, every environmental problem on greenhouse gases. Whether it's hurricanes or forest fires, droughts, floods, um, uh, uh, biodiversity decline, insect die off, things like that, bats, bees, butterflies. And I'm not saying that that global warming is not a factor in these things, but Often it's kind of an easy scapegoat that puts responsibility onto distant authorities um, and whole systems. When in fact, um, for example, a lot of uh, a lot of what we blame on climate on, on climate change is actually caused by deforestation and soil abuse that disrupts the water cycle. I could go into that if you want. It's getting a bit, it's a bit more um, you know detail level stuff. Uh, So maybe later, if you want, I can go into that. But right now, I'll just say that that the rush to identify one cause, one enemy, one identifiable thing to fight, it's like um, saying that your physical health is a matter of how many calories you take in. So if I can only lose weight, if I can only eat less, here's something I can fight against, then my problems would be solved. So that impulse, which is so uh, consistent with fundamentalism, so consistent with monetary thinking, um, so consistent with this find the enemy reductionistic approach to the world, I think is a big problem. And and so I'm, I'm calling for uh, another way to look at things, a new story of climate.
1: Yeah, the new story and these examples that you bring with the war mentality. Um, and you explain them just like you did with with um, so many other examples. Really help ground the story of interbeing, and really show us the the shortcomings in the story of separation. Because really, that war mentality mentality is coming from that story of separation, that illusion that we're separate from the other. It's a brilliant right. example. I really appreciate that example, Charles. I. I um, I think that how you phrase the war mentality in the book really gives us this easy even looking at how you know how we think we need to get rid of bacteria or how we need to get rid of insects or how we need to because we're you know we don't like them and so it really wakes us up to go oh wow um, I can look at this story differently. Yes, yes. Thank you for appreciating i i do appreciate it and i appreciate so much more about this book we're going to take a break here in just a minute and when we come back we're going to talk so much more about beauty and love and maybe the core of the truth i'm going to just um read one little quote here charles before we go to break because you wrote this kind of brings us down to the the war mentality dear reader do you think we can beat the military, industrial, financial, agricultural, pharmaceutical, NGO, educational, political complex at its own game? And that one sentence was like, "Ah, oh, we don't have to fight that fight. It's an invitation for us to open those different doors in the maze, to explore um, a whole new way of looking at the problem. So I love that sentence. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, so much more with Charles Eisenstein and Climate, A New Story.
0: Listening to Empower Radio, an entire radio station devoted to your personal development, expanding your conscious awareness, and empowering positive change. Meet our hosts and listen online at empowerradio.com. On iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Stitcher Radio, or iTunes, or download the Empower Radio app for your smartphone or tablet. It's free in the App Store and it lets you listen to our shows and podcasts on demand. Empowering people, empowering change. Empower Radio, online at empowerradio.com. So you see, son, good manners are very, very important. Someday, many years from now, when you're a grown-up, you'll be a man. And when you are, you should be a gentleman. Do you want me to go through it one more time? Yes. Yes, please. Yes, please. Exactly. Always say please, thank you, you're welcome, and excuse me. Sit up straight, hold doors open for ladies. If a door's shut, then knock first. Don't burp, don't swear, don't speak with your mouth full, don't reach across people's plates, keep your elbows off the table. What table? And don't interrupt. While we're at it, don't stare, don't use foul language, don't call people names, but do remember people's names. Always share your toys, play nice, and cover your mouth when you cough or sneeze. On the bus, give up your seat to anyone who has trouble standing. Bottom line, treat others the way you'd like to be treated. Got it? Got it. And stop picking your nose. Most parenting is hard to do in just two minutes. But spending just two minutes twice a day making sure they brush their teeth is easier and could help save them from a lifetime of tooth pain. For fun two-minute videos to watch while brushing, visit twomin2x.org. That's two twomin2x.org. A message from the Partnership for Healthy Miles, Healthy Lives, and the Ag Council. This is you over 30 years ago. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And this is your mom... When you drive her back from therapy. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Roles change without us noticing. And in your new role, we help you help. AARP gives you the information to help care for your mom so that you can have patience with her
1: just like she did with you. Visit aarp.org caregiving or call one 3 5 to get practical health and wellness tips to provide even better care for your loved one.
0: Are we there yet?
1: Remember, visit AARP.org slash caregiving. AARP, we help you help. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Every day I wake up at 5 to give Dad his medicine. Every day I wake up at 5 to give dad his medicine. At 6 I make his breakfast. Every day, I wake up at 5 to give Dad his medicine. At 6, I make his breakfast. At 7, I shower. Every day, I wake up
0: For at those five. caring for a loved one, we hear you. That's why AARP created a community to help us better care for ourselves and the ones we love. Visit aarp.org caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Smile. You found Empower Radio. Now, back to the Dr. Julie Show. All things connected on Empower Radio.
1: Welcome back. Hey, if you're inspired by our conversation today, I invite you to share it with others and maybe even listen to it again. You can do that by visiting my website at thedrjulieshow.com where you'll find all the archive links as well as a listing of upcoming guests. Again, that's thedrjulieshow.com. Also, stay connected all week on our Facebook page, All Things Connected with Dr. Julie, where we continue the conversation we're talking today with charles eisenstein author of the new book climate a new story and you can find more of charles work at charles again that's charles and charles before we move into beauty and love i just want to bring this one piece home you wrote in the book my favorite quote i think of the whole entire book uh maybe not because i'm going to close with another one so i've got a lot of favorite quotes now, Charles, I'm going to be sharing many, many, many of them on social media. But this quote is important. The core truth of climate change is that we are at the end of an era. We're at the end of the age of separation. Is that really true? And tell me more. I'm so excited to go. Yes, that's got to be true. We're ending this age and we're moving into a whole new place of interbeing. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, it's really sending us the message that we cannot escape the effects of our actions on others, that that what we do to the other is coming back to us in some way. Now, I think that we may not accurately understand exactly the way that our uh, violence to the world is going to affect us, but that core truth is inescapable. And, and it's it's kind of new. Well, I mean, other civilizations have bumped up into ecological limits and suffered the consequences of their ruining of places. Uh, but you could always escape to somewhere else. And that's, in a global civilization, that's no longer true. We are confined together here, and there is no escape. And I wouldn't say that that means that inevitably we are tr- transitioning to an age of reunion or an age of interbeing, but it presents us with a stark invitation to do so. Ultimately, I think it's our choice whether or not we will accept that invitation. If we do not accept it, we will get repeated invitations that are more and more stark.
1: Yeah, thanks for that. You wrote in the book about how, like, one of our first wake-up calls was the atomic bomb. And it kind of made us go, oh, we we are connected. If I detonate this, um, there'll be consequences that come back at me. And that climate change is much like that that stark invitation that says, hey, you know, we're all in this together. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. the uh, yeah, nuclear war was, was – I mean, that marked – really the end of an era because up until then you could uh you could believe that if you could finally defeat your enemy then your problems would be solved like that was on the table of solutions total war was on the was on the menu of of solutions to a conflict and that no longer is a solution and has not been since 1950 so so we're still I think we're still uh metabolizing that that fact that we have to get along. We can't unleash all out war. We can't just lose it and go into full uh aggressor mode anymore. There's there's restraints. Yet we still have the basic mindset of solving problems through the exercise of force. Which which is the that quote you read before the break, that's what that's referring to, that that um that mindset is failing us when we, face, when we are faced with a superior force, the military, industrial, et cetera, complex. Yeah. Yeah. So we're being invited into a different way of being, of seeing the world, of solving problems, um, of healing.
1: So that new, different way of being in the world and seeing our problems and healing really um, is a beautiful narrative of love, and love for the precious places and beings on our earth. Love for who we are as, as in our wholeness and in our interconnectedness. Let's speak more about love. You invite us into a revolution um, of love here.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't think that fear is enough to inspire the courage to do the things that we need to do to live in a on a beautiful living healed planet only love can inspire that amount of courage so i because like just to give an example um the fear-based arguments to say reduce your carbon footprint um really if you're going to act from fear the best way to maximize your own self-interest is for everybody else to make the changes and not you that's that's the kind of um, thinking that fear generates. So I think we need to shift the narrative to to love. And so I ask, where does love come from? Where does love for nature, for, for earth, for the rivers, for the forest, where does that come from? And what blocks that? Because I think it's actually innate to human beings because we are fundamentally not separate as the story of separation says, we are inter existence. So it's it's innate so all of these these beings, these forests, these rivers, the other people across the world, these are all part of us. They are within the constellation of self and so so love is is natural to, to us. But but why are we not acting from love? What is diverting it? What is blocking it? What is cutting us off from our birthright of of connection? Of and intimacy. So that's that's what a lot of the book is about. And, and you know, I, I discuss several things. One of them is ideology that holds the world as an inanimate pile of stuff, of resources, uh, but not a being, not a living being in its own right, maybe the host of living beings, but not an actual being in and of itself. That ideology, and even if it is, alive, like Gaia theory posits, well, it's not intelligent and it's not conscious, that that ideology is a thoroughly modern way of thinking. Indigenous societies did not believe anything of the sort. They believed that earth and sea and wind and air and fire and forest and soil and rocks even were all beings that we were not alone here. Uh, it's only modern people who have believed otherwise. So, yeah, ideology is one thing that gets in the way of love because it's stupid to love a thing, you know, like to, to love a, a, a brick, you know, or something like that. I mean, you'd, you'd think I had some kind of psychological problem if I, if I said, Julie, I, I love my brick. I mean, not just for what it's useful for, but, but I love it. You know, I just feel so connected to my brick. I, I sing it lullabies every night. I just love my brick. And, and you know, there's something kind of weird there. But if I say that about my child, I love my child, not just because maybe he'll support me in my old age, not just because he makes me laugh, but I love him. I would do anything for him, whether or not it comes back to my self-interest. Yeah. Of course. So that is the, the relationship that I would like to see humanity engage in with Earth, actual love, because then we're going to really do the things necessary to care for this living being. Um, so, yeah, ideology is one thing that gets in the way of it. And then there's also trauma um, that cuts us off from our feeling capacity. Um and that kind of healing maybe cannot be done just through books and words and things like that, so i 'm not you know the, the, the story the story of interbeing that I find so healing is just one layer of of of, of something much vaster, something much more profound that that it 's just like the narrative layer, and the same being can be uh, spread, not just through words, but through music, through touch, through healing modalities, through, through presence. Um, it, you know, it's, it's, it's an all-encompassing transition that we are facing. Uh, and I'm just kind of working on the intellectual aspect of it, but I hope also that some of the deeper levels are transmitted through my voice you know, through the the poetics of my words and not just the intellectual semantic content.
1: You know, that's a good point because just as you were saying that, I was writing down how this prescription is really healing for our soul. Um, Hearing your words do um, touch something deeper and stir and quicken, Something, And I, I think that that invitation feels so much more motivational than the fear-based stories we've been telling ourselves. You also recognize the deep power of beauty and committing to building this beautiful world because of the beauty. And that's a tough one for an intellectual to maybe absorb. So I'd love for you to expand on that a little bit.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Currently, uh, civilization, and specifically the economy, is driven to produce more and more stuff. Uh, It's driven by quantity rather than quality. Beauty is qualitative. I don't think you can quantify beauty. So instead of asking what is the most efficient choice, what is the most rational choice, Uh, what choice comes up highest on whatever cost-benefit calculus we are exercising, whether it's financial or carbon, we could ask, what is the most beautiful choice? That, to me, is the lover that is singing me out of the maze, to orient what is most beautiful to me, even if I can't make sense of it. So a lot of what—so, okay, um, in the mainstream climate narrative, certain actions— are relevant to saving the world and certain actions are irrelevant. Relevant is if it has a measurable impact on greenhouse gases. Irrelevant would be something like um, maybe rehabilitating homeless people or exonerating wrongly convicted men on death row or uh, uh, revitalizing dying languages. Like, what if your passion is to is to bring back uh, Scottish Gaelic or, or uh, you know, some other lost or almost lost language? And it seems really important to you. But someone says, well, justify that on climate grounds and you can't do it. Justify re- rehabilitating the homeless on climate grounds. <clears throat> You're like they're going to be consuming more if they enter normal society. They're hurting the climate, right? So, so from the metrics perspective, from the quantitative perspective, a lot of what we do from our hearts, what it calls to us, to calls to our care, um, is kind of written off. And in the war mentality, uh, you know, let's put that stuff off until after we've solved this problem. The enemy's at the gates. We have to, you know, we can't work on on. You know planting the city park or doing whatever until we defeat the enemy uh, so yeah so so okay paradoxically when you really embrace interbeing you understand that global warming or climate change or or i mean i think really what we're facing is is ecological disintegration we realize that everything is part of everything else, and that the global climate reflects the political climate, the spiritual climate, the psychic climate, that any healing in any situation um, generates a morphogenetic field of healing that brings healing to every situation, that it is impossible to have a healthy ecology when People are suffering when they're alienated, when they're hungry, when they are, when they are um, uh, full of rage and, and depression. Like People like that, they're going to want to consume. They're going to be oblivious to others. They're not going to be able to exercise their care and their gifts. So of course the planet will be sick. And that means that whatever you are drawn to as an expression of your gifts, as a change agent, as a healer, as a servant of the beauty of the world is relevant. It may not be measurable. It may not fit into the causal theory that science embodies and that is invoked as uh, um, the guiding rubric for, for climate action. But, uh, and so I'm saying that um, kind of quantitative, that 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 quantitative metrics based cost benefit way of making decisions. That is what's keeping us in the maze. We have to listen to something else because we do not know how to get out of the situation. If we are going to rely on, on our accepted causality, which is based on force to overcome the institutions and people who are running the show. And and pushing us toward ruin ecologically, if we're going to depend on force to overcome them, it's impossible. We have to navigate in another way. We have to listen to something else. And that, so beauty is one of the ways that I conceive of what, of how do I make choices when I don't know what the impact is going to be?
1: Yeah, you, thank you. I, I think that this whole conversation of beauty is important. And and you just had, had mentioned that this pli- planetary climate is really deeply connected to our political climate, our social climate, our spiritual climate, and our personal internal climate, our internal ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I heard you do is invite our listeners. I'm going to just repeat this because I think it's worth bringing back. Uh, around here is to invite them to follow their own personal ecosystem, their own inner climate that's maybe calling them to feed the homeless or to 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 save the bees, or whatever is right in front of them that what's calling their heart. And what's alluring them from their sense of beauty in the world is a good place to start, and it will make a difference. It's that mm-hmm. last sentence that will make a difference. How does it make a difference, Charles?
0: In the story of separation, it's totally irrational. But like you gave some examples. I mean, what if what if you're, what what if what's calling to your love is that you have? And I heard recently, just to give an example, you know, this woman with an autistic child who is like so uncontrollable and so difficult, like smearing everything with poop all the time, you know, just like, like to care for this being is a full-time job, totally thankless, um, exhausting, but it's what love is calling her to do. She has said love leaves her no alternative, but to care for this being. How is that going to affect the global climate? How would it affect the global climate if she just pushed him out onto the street or put him in some institution or something like that where where, he wasn't going to get very good care? Um, All of us are faced with situations like this in our personal lives that we recognize as important. We recognize that by choosing to love and care for what is brought into our experience, we are choosing what world we want to live in. We are issuing a prayer that aligns us with a healed world when we engage in the healing that is given to us, as if by an organizing intelligence that is deploying each person in exactly the right place to do just the right job. And so here we get into a profoundly unscientific worldview that says that there is intelligence in the world. If there is no intelligence in the world, if it's a random melee of force and mass, then your skepticism is totally justified. And it doesn't matter what you do in the confines of your own mind or your own home or your own relationships. It's a drop in the bucket on a global scale. In the story of interbeing, we recognize that causality doesn't work the way that we were told, and sometimes in your life you get experiences that that seem to reveal the traces of an underlying intelligence in all things, such as um, synchronicities. Like sometimes maybe you've experienced like mind-blowing synchronicities, or perhaps you've had healing experiences that. From from medically incurable conditions that could only come because of the organic intelligence of the body. Science uh, as a metaphysical foundation for our understanding of reality is really limited. I have had experiences that science would declare nonsense. Um, My wife's whole profession would be declared nonsense by science. So if we are in despair because our force-based causal efforts are insufficient, we are actually buying into a limited worldview. Interbeing says that that any, anything that happens in one place is happening everywhere. That because all things partake in each other, all things are interconnected. So a change that happens in one place. Um, Invites a change to happen everywhere.
1: You know, it's it's. You're right. It's not an easy way to say. Well, science isn't going to back us up, but the new science is showing so much more. Um, just good news about how mm-hmm. our old ancient wisdom is really true how everything is really connected there's so much good science now and you you mentioned though this this living intelligence this living intelligence of interconnectivity that's in all life and i'm i'm thinking about the message of healing and how do we heal when we heal we create the conditions for this living intelligence to come in and do its thing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I wonder if you could just speak about that just for a, a minute. We've got about 3 minutes left here.
0: So well, I think to really allow the living intelligence that's outside of ourselves to exercise its full power, we have we have to have some kind of release of control. That could be Uh, That's pretty obvious on a a personal level, like the ways that we're trying to maintain reality and to stay safe and to stay secure, to keep everything predictable and familiar, like those can be what also perpetuate a disease pattern. Uh, More generally, in uh, ecological healing, for example, when we understand that soil and water and, and forests have their own organizing principles, their own coherency, their own uh, intelligence. Then instead of trying to impose order or to impose design uh, on these beings, we become participants instead. And the first step then is to listen for what wants to happen here. Um, What is the dream of this land? How can I participate? How can I participate in, in what wants to happen? So technology becomes no longer about domination, but about co-creation. And that is, it's an orientation that, that respects nature or let's say life outside of us as a being, as, as a partner. And not as an instrument for ourselves.
1: Mm, Charles, I just pause after everything you say. It just resonates so deeply, and it is um, just to give you that affirmation. Your words are poetic, and your voice is resonant. And I hope all of our listeners can really feel the the power and hope of of really co-creating this new story together as we move forward.
0: Yeah, thank you. Um, it's definitely not a hopeless situation. Uh, all we have to do is listen and release. Mm. I like that idea of giving
1: up control and releasing. So the deep listening is important, too. The story that you opened with and the allegory is so powerful. And and I just appreciate everything that you're bringing to this new voice here. And thank you so much for joining us again on the show.
0: Yeah, thank you so much, Julie.
1: Thank you. And listeners, thank you for listening today. If this conversation has touched you in any way, if the topic has moved you, if there's some idea or part of the conversation that you feel would make a difference in somebody's life, I invite you to take it just a few minutes and share it with others. And then of course, if you feel called, sign up for my email list so we can stay connected. I invite you to be a part of this continuing conversation. My hope, is to introduce guests and ideas that impact how we experience the world and to make this an ongoing conversation, creating and inspiring connections that lift us all together collectively for the good of the whole. I want to leave you now with a quote from Charles, very powerful. From the story of interbeing, we intuit different kinds of cause and effect. We're not surprised that in a carceral society that locks up millions of its members, those outside the prisons lose their freedoms too. We're not surprised that when a nation perpetuates violence around the world, that no amount of security, surveillance, walls, or fences can keep violence from sneaking back in as domestic violence or self-destructive habits. And we're not surprised that environmental pollution and habitat degradation are mirrored in bodily illness and the degradation of our inner landscapes. The illusion of separation has us think that one could conceivably thrive on a poisonous planet with the right air filters, water filters, EMF blockers, supplements, air conditioners, antibiotics, antifungals, bug zappers, and so on, replacing a world of nature with a world of technology. In interbeing, we know That health for one is impossible to sustain without health for all. You've been listening to the Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And remember, together, we are creating connections for the good of the whole. Until next time, I'm sending you a world of love. Bye for now.